You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journey here at UVic. All right, I'm your host, Liz MacArthur, for Beyond the Jargon today, and joining me in the studio is Carol Linnett, a PhD candidate in the English and CSPT departments. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. Um, first off, can you just briefly give us, um, tell us what CSPT is for people that don't know? Sure. Oh, you caught the jargon right away there. <laughs> so the CSPT program is uh, an interdisciplinary graduate program, um, and CSPT stands for Cultural, Social, and Political Thought. All right. And you are doing English as well. So can you tell us what specifically what you're studying? I've interviewed a few other people in this program, and, and it really varies what they study. Yeah, it's really broad. I mean, it spans a couple different departments. We've got sociology and English, so um, there's quite a broad group of uh or broad representation of interests. For me, I'm studying, my interests kind of lie at the intersection of uh, politics and environmental issues, actually. So Mm -hmm. one of the things I'm really interested right now, and this relates to what I do outside of school, is um, misinformation and how you create um, distrust, a distrustful public and a disengaged public and how you confuse the public about crucial issues. Hmm. Can you give us an example of something you might be looking at? You said, And you said that this is something that you do outside of your studies as well. What do you mean by that? So outside of school, I am an editor of a news, an independent news and opinion site called Dsmog Canada, dsmog.ca. And, uh, and part of my work there is to identify and expose and sort of talk through the tactics that are being used in misinformation in the public, in the public sphere. And usually that we, we stick to issues around democracy, transparency, environment and energy issues. So um, I can think of lots of examples, but probably one of my, my favorite examples to point to um, has to do with the the pipeline and tanker issue off the coast of BC here. And the company, um, Enbridge, who's the proponent of a large pipeline running from Alberta to the coast of BC, put out a map or a, a short video explaining... Um, using animation to show the pipeline route. And once the pipeline hits the coast of BC, you see this uh, this little sort of cute toy tanker sort of um, shipping off the coast into this broad expanse of ocean. Mm-hmm. And what a scientist noticed when she watched that video was that all of the um, little intricate islands had been removed from the body of water, which of course was quite a contentious thing. This is, it was those islands, in fact, that um, made people very nervous about the prospect of, um, of super tankers traveling mm-hmm. through them with oil. So this is like a classic example of misinformation. It's, it's um, a, a company putting out public information that is meant to sort of manipulate public perception. Now, uh, when it comes to the blog, are you just sort of dissecting that on the blog and talking about, um, about the actual misinformation itself and then maybe the creation of it? Yeah, so we do all sorts of things. So we we also cover um, news, and uh, we we and then we do some sort of in depth research, and uh, and then we'll also do sort of theoretical kind of pieces on what exactly is happening when we see misinformation. What are the tactics and strategies being used, and how can we be more savvy to them, and how can we provide some pushback to them? So hmm. so we have sometimes we have um, academics actually who will guess right for us and sort of deconstruct a piece, um, or we'll, we'll interview academics, people who specialize in propaganda, hmm. 
or um, you know other various facets of of the way that information circulates in the in the public sphere. Hmm. Oh, and when it comes to your research, are you looking at the same examples, or are you looking at different examples? I'm I'm right now at the moment. I'm really interested in misinformation in Canada. I think that one of the things we're seeing is sort of a coordinated misinformation campaign. And it's interesting to call it misinformation because um, I think traditionally it would have just been called propaganda. Mm. But propaganda um, tends to be a very loaded term and people sort of immediately think of the Nazi era. And so it mm. it has this has these strong connotations that um, almost repel people. People kind of want to tune out and they don't really want to listen to that. The flip side of that is people often call it PR. And right. they say, oh, it's just public relations. Um, which I think really neutralizes it and makes it seem like it's less of a of a, a negative thing. Um, so what I'm really interested in is the way that these sort of coordinated misinformation campaigns, which um, in my research I'm looking at how they, they occur in right-wing think tanks, industry, and government, and then some sort of conservative commentators in news media. Mm-hmm. So when you look at all of these things in concert, you see sort of um, a certain set of talking points or a certain set of ideas being advanced about Canada, especially about um, environmental issues or energy issues related to oil and gas and these types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really interested in that and how that works and how it's playing out in Canada mm-hmm. um, and how it polarizes um, public debate and conversations about these issues and, and how people sort of will almost want to tune it out in, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I worked as a reporter for several years, and um, and you do see those parallels when you start to see when you start to understand who knows who, and you understand how lobbyists are uh, interacting with politicians, things like yeah. that, and the think tanks and the reports that come out, and sort of, <clears throat> I don't know. Sometimes you'll see a report come out, and then the dominoes fall as other uh, people sort of align themselves with these things. Are you looking at present day Canada specifically? Or are you looking this at, uh, looking at like historically? I'm looking mostly at the Harper government's right. Okay. Um, Administration. So one of the really interesting things that had this kind of domino effect, um, and the blog I write for actually was the one to break this story, was uh, the Ethical Oil Campaign, which is this really mm. kind of very, it, it really smacks of sort of a, a right-wing um, American like Tea Party politics kind of mm-hmm. um, style campaign where you have this argument being advanced about Canada's oil, particularly Alberta's oil sands oil being ethical oil and there's all these sort of logical fallacies and these sort of um, very extremely reductive arguments being advanced saying things for example um, like if you buy, if, if, if we extract and produce and consume Canadian oil we are actively participating in the freedom and rights of people who live in um, despotic regimes. So the the line of argue, argument is that Nigerian oil or Saudi Arabian oil is being produced under less than democratic circumstances where people's rights and freedoms, um, they can enjoy them like we can in Canada. And also environment the environment isn't protected like it is in Canada. Um, therefore... Canadian oil is morally superior oil to oil from these other countries. And the more that we produce and consume of that oil, the more, the less we are sort of producing and consuming in these other countries, which means we're sort of uh, promoting freedom, um, freedom from political oppression in the world. And, of course, anyone who kind of hears that argument um, might raise an eyebrow. But, mm-hmm. but when you kind of throw out these sort of uh, talking points and names like Candace Oil's ethical oil, they're actually quite effective um, talking points that really stick in people's minds and imagination. And I, I remember feeling so frustrated at this campaign 
and even hearing, you know, my dad at one point was like, well, isn't Canada's oil kind of like, couldn't you say it's kind of more ethical? And he didn't know where he had heard that from. Right. Um, and that's just how effective these kinds of campaigns are, right? Mm. And it's a battle for public perception. And so um, one of our researchers at DSmog, um, she did this amazing amount of research into, I mean, it was great investigative work into IP addresses and where these offices were and those offices were. And she basically uncovered, no one had figured out who was funding this mm. um, campaign. And she basically uncovered that it was a mixture of the conservative, the Harper government, conservative government, and the oil industry. And that's, um, I think that that was a really effective um, investigation. And people now, when they mention ethical oil, they mention it's a, it's a lobby group or that it's a pro-oil group funded by, you know, the oil and gas industry and sponsored by the conservative government, so on and so forth. So hmm. these things are important for it's it's important for us to be on our guard um, with these types of actors in, in the in the political realm, right? And who who's paying them? Whose interests are they advancing? Who's benefiting from what they're arguing? All those types of questions I, I feel are actually quite important to democracy. Yes. Um, how did you wind up at this point? What did you study in your undergrad and I guess your master's as well? Yeah, it was an interesting um, series of accidents actually that right. led me to where I am, which I think is probably the case for a lot of people. But I um, started out at UBC. Um, well, actually, even before that, I started at Kwantlen Polytechnic University. I wanted to study English and be an English professor. And um, when I finished, I finished my undergrad at UBC and I ended up going to York University to do a master's in English. And York is a really theory-heavy program. They're very political, very progressive. Hmm. And um, I, think, I think I remember laughing, um, reflecting after my first year that I had only read one novel in an English master's. Right. Um, and I ended up writing my thesis on, um, on sort of uh, political identities and sovereignty and Aboriginal rights. And hmm. the reason I, I kind of fell into that topic was because I'd been hired as a researcher um, researching human rights in um, countries that had fallen off the mainstream media's radar. So where were human rights abuses occurring um, that no one was talking about? And that work led me to being hired by um, a conflict resolution mediator to work with him on a conflict, a long-standing conflict between um, the Canadian government and a First, Na- First Nations tribe off the coast of BC here called the Hyaltsuk. Hmm. And uh, they had won a Supreme Court ruling that they had sort of been prevented from, from legally fishing their traditional fisheries, herring mm-hmm. and uh, herring roe. Um, by the Canadian government. And in the meantime, commercial fisheries had come in and sort of uh, just completely pillaged this resource. And by the time all was said and done and this long court case was finished, um, this First Nations tribe was told they were allowed to fish um, for for social and ceremonial purposes, um, but there were no fish left. And that, for me, watching, reading through that case history and watching what the fallout was of this made me really realize that there was quite an intersection between natural resource and environmental issues and social justice issues. And so I was, I'd always been sort of interested in human rights. Um, and and so through this like kind of series of jobs I had, I ended up studying um, this issue. And that was sort of the thing that got me really interested in environmental issues and how they sort of um, one of the most important issues of our time and, and climate change, but then so many other issues related to um, species and biodiversity and the health of oceans and access to clean water, all these types of things. And um, 
so because of because of my sort of move into talking about environmental issues, um, I had a friend who introduced me to the amazing crew at um, DSmog, and I got hired to to write a report, and I wrote a report for them on fracking, actually, mm-hmm. and um, and then after that, I became a regular contributor, and a few years later, now I'm I'm the editor of the Canadian site. Wow. Um, so you say the Canadian site. So D- the DSmog blog is... Uh, so there's DSmog blog, which is founded and started in Canada. And right. I guess technically it's quite Canadian. We used to cover a lot of Canadian content. But um, as the as the sort of Harper years began to settle into Canada, I think a lot of people felt like we needed to have a concentrated blog just to write about Canadian issues. Mm. And so that's why we formed DSmog Canada. And so DSmogBlog.com and DSmog.ca um, operate now as related but separate entities and one is sort of U.S. and international based, and the other is uh, more Canadian based. Hmm. It seems as um, as the current government lasts longer and longer that there are more and more voices coming up. I don't. Know. I can't think of a time. It seems like activism and concern about things like misinformation are on the uptick. I was talking to someone. I don't know, a few weeks ago, from Viperk, and he was talking about how the 90s were sort of this very, or the early 2000s were this sort of dead era, especially on university campuses for um, for things like activism. But it seems like that is becoming more of an issue right now. And I don't know, do you, I don't know if you have any insight into what exactly it is that's pushing people to become more active. I don't know if this is something you even think is, is happening. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I wish I knew more statistics on that because I, I bet you it would be interesting to kind of look through them, mm-hmm. look at them through through history. Um, I, I remember saying to somebody a few years ago, I think it was around 2007. 2007 was an interesting year because that was an all-time high for um, belief in man-made climate change and concern about it. Right. And interestingly enough, there was kind of a downturn after that, and now we're back on an uprise. Um, and you can there's all sorts of reasons to speculate why that occurred. But um, I remember, you know, feeling the sort of despondency and 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 panic that came with realizing that we were sort of changing the the sort of geophysics of the the Earth and this finite planet with these finite resources, and. Um, and saying to somebody, you know, we should, we need to be on the streets, and like this is so important, and it's, it's almost cataclysmic, and, and somebody saying, you know, we felt that way in the seventies. We thought that was the end of the world then too, hmm. and, um, and I mean, I took that with a grain of salt. I took it to mean um, there are always things worth fighting for, and, and so I, I tried to temper my concern with. Um, my my tendency to feel despair. So this is always like the the you know a, a trap for activists and advocates is that you you start to feel this burnout and you forget what you hope you're hopeful for. And so I, I do think that um, I do all around me I see amazing um, and inspiring groups uh, fighting for all sorts of forms of social justice and and I think in some way. Um, people have, there's been kind of a shift to localized thinking. And in in some ways, I wonder if that has had um, some bearing on people feeling empowered and getting involved, even Mm. if it's a sort of local and small scale. um, People are starting to see that as actually a really strong source of power. And And maybe we've seen some examples of other countries where progressive change has been has really taken hold and has been kind of beautiful and amazing like Germany you see there were sort of small pockets of people um, 
doing things like creating, um, you know, their, just their own independent source of energy through solar panels or whatever, and then sort of connecting it to their neighbors. And it mm-hmm. wasn't just them doing it, it was everyone else. And then pretty soon you had this kind of alternative system that once it was integrated, uh, actually provided a, a full alternative to the the nuclear system that they were reliant on. And when I look at that, I think, man, it's so um, important that here in Canada on these small scales, we're actually working together and collaborating and um, thinking that uh, with a view to a different future, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, that maybe didn't answer your question about exactly are people more engaged now, but um, but I think there is a there has been a change in the ethos, I guess, right. around these issues, and and it's moved more from cataclysmic despair to um, feet on the ground and small scale collectives working together. Right. Let's talk a little bit about your research. Uh, if you talk about um, what exactly you are looking at, you talked a bit about um, the connections that you're examining. Uh, what is your research material? How do you gather that? And um, and then what's the process? And what is going to be the final outcome for your PhD? Well, that's a good question. I'm 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 sort of I always feel like I'm I've got these two ideas I'm working on. And one because I I write for a public audience and I and I'm a reporter and a blogger. Mm-hmm. Um, I have this this need, this, you know, this strong desire to produce something that can be relevant for the general public. And so I imagine my research being turned into um, into a book that, you know, could have wide distribution that wouldn't be sort of locked up in the academic coffers, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm hoping. So um, what I'm looking at right now, um, my basic research is a, is a lot of public publicly available information. So these are government websites and press releases, um, advertising material and campaign material, um, industry websites and um, industry um, interviews, like times when they've been speaking to the media and advertising, and then also um, think tank reports and and press releases and their engagement with the media um, and then cer- certain conservative uh, spokespeople, I guess you could call them, or and or journalists, mm-hmm. and how there is a, a circulation of ideas that happens um, where one idea will pop up somewhere and then suddenly it's everywhere, and that's called the echo chamber mm-hmm. effect. And so I'm looking at what I call the, the, the echo chamber, the, the government industry echo chamber around environmental issues. And so all of those I take as sort of my source material. And there's, there's a lot you can do there. You can... Um, analyze um, rhetoric, for example, and how they're talking about these issues. Mm-hmm. For me, I'm really interested in, in trying to understand when they say one thing, how are they obscuring something else? So, Or how, how are half-truths being told that end up basically, it's a truth, but it operates exactly the same way as a lie. And so this is like, this is, for example, um, one of my favorite examples with this is um, with fracking, this issue of, of um, hydraulic fracturing for oil and gas, which has become an industrial process that's more and more popular. Amazingly, a lot of people are familiar with it. Not so many heavy industrial processes mm-hmm. are so publicly um, um, known as something like fracking, right? So mm-hmm. with fracking, a lot of people say, why don't we just ask for baseline water testing. So before a company can go in and do this like dangerous drilling for oil or gas, you test the water so that you know exactly what is and what is not in the water. And then industry comes in, they do their thing. And if the water is contaminated afterwards, it's very easy to point the finger um, on, on the cause, right? And this is something that industry has just 
absolutely resisted so much. And so you have a country, or sorry, a province like Alberta where there's over 200,000 wells mm-hmm. um, in operation, and there's old wells and new wells, and they're con- they're they're connecting underground, which is cr- creating these blowouts on farmers' fields, and it's it's mm-hmm. kind of crazy. I mean that 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 province has a long history of oil and gas development, so um, maybe their underlying geology is more threatened because of that. So that people have been really there's been this public outcry for for baseline water testing, and um, I just recently realized that the Alberta government had put out a press release saying that they um, or it's listed on their website. Maybe they put out a press release too. But on their website it says that they have introduced baseline water testing now. And I said, wow, I've never even heard of this. Where like when did they decide to do that? That's that's amazing. When I looked into it more. They will do baseline water testing for one kind of hydraulic fracturing in one kind of very shallow reservoir of, of oil or gas. Um, and so, in effect, you know, the majority of these fracking operations will not have baseline water testing, but the government has been able to pat itself on the back and publicly say, we have introduced baseline water testing, aren't we? We're doing exactly what we said we're going to do, which is protect people in the environment. But really, like, you know, one more one more level down, when you look at it, they're, they're using a very, very small truth to conceal a very big and dangerous lie, which is that people aren't being protected from these industrial processes. Mm-hmm. So those are the kinds of things that I'm really interested in, not only... Um, identifying but also sort of naming and talking about um, how they operate and what they do and then and then ultimately how those affect public discourse so then you have these people who are pointing to um, you know a supposed fact that isn't really much of a fact at all or it is a fact but the fact is is that that fact shows that baseline water testing isn't actually occurring in the majority of the circumstances so it's those kinds of um the implications and significance of those and for how public conversations can occur about these how can you vote on something like that when information is so skewed and so manipulated and so um misleading and actually just it just creates confusion and conflict and and i think that's when you see people disconnecting from the political process and the less people are engaged in voting the more it benefits the very people who have created that that corrosive confusion in the first place like like industry or government that is making tons of money from industry it does it become difficult to um pay attention i guess to the news in a any kind of in, in a way that I don't know. Are you constantly analyzing things and constantly looking at this kind of rhetoric and misinformation? Does it make it almost, I don't know, would it make it impossible to like watch the news or pay attention to stuff that's reported on um, in a way that you feel like you're getting any actual information? Because I feel like this is something that people uh, maybe aren't looking into things like rhetoric and looking into things as in-depth as you are. But I, I don't know, I often hear people talking about feeling like they're, you know, the, the actual message is being obscured. Yeah, it's it's definitely, it's kind of one of those things, once you see it, you can never not see it. Or right. once you know it, you can never not know it. Um, but having said that, I, I do think there are some really interesting things happening on the media landscape with, you know, the advent of new media, this mm-hmm. this sort of idea that media is becoming um, decentralized and re-democratized and you have bloggers and researchers who um, are really picking up the slack where mainstream media has um, has sort of fallen um, off the off the mark. Mm-hmm. And um, there's also, you know, some incredible journalists out there who are still actually working and writing. 
um, and and doing amazing things and who haven't lost the message and who aren't um, you know just operating as a as an arm of of, of PR groups, which um, an amazing amount of our news is coming from from PR write ups that end up on a on a journalist desk and they end up writing about it. Um, so there are people who are chasing down real stories and doing real research, which mm-hmm. which I admire them and I'm grateful for them. Um, but I do think that it, it is amazing once you start to see these things in operation, um, how how prolific they are. So this is not this isn't something that is unique to environmental issues at all, or Canadian issues, or politics whatsoever. This is something that has you know had a long history um, in um, you know reporting and information distribution about warfare and about pharmaceuticals and the tobacco industry is a famous example of of misinformation and manipulation of public opinion and and the creation of doubt and how that, you know, it's really interesting to see how some of these precursors became um, manuals for later misinformation campaigns Famously, the relationship between the tobacco industry, um, this sowing of doubt, and climate change deniers, hmm. and their sowing of doubt, and doubt as the product. And all you need to do is make people doubt the science, and that's enough to maintain the status quo and prevent people from taking action on issues. Hmm. So I, th- I think it's interesting because people are, like you said, a lot more savvy to this, and um, and people really like apparently when uh, the oil and gas industry had made these oil sands ads um, that played in movie theaters before films, um, the audiences laughed and booed. Right. And to me, that's um, that's kind of amazing. That is, that is an informed and engaged public who won't um, be you know have the wool pulled over their eyes. They're <laughs> totally seeing through that. And and um, I think that's that's an amazing trend. That is exactly what we want to see. We want people to be very very smart so that they're not being taken advantage of. But the the, the flip side of that is how are these how are these tactics and strategies becoming more sophisticated? How are they going more underground? And where are they the hardest to see? And where are they having the most effect? Hmm. Um, have you had any, I don't know if you would have had any response yet to the research you're doing for your PhD, but I'm interested to know if you have had any um, response from maybe the people that you are researching, um, or I imagine you would have had quite a bit of response from the blog that you write for. Um, has it been negative, positive? What kind of feedback do you hear? Um, well, it's interesting. I, I just went and spoke to a group of um, scientists at UBC actually about this. And I talked about misinformation as a barrier to science in Canada. And this is another thing, another whole like side of what's happening in Canada is the, 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 the so-called war on science um, and the muzzling of scientists and the cuts to science programs and, and research in Canada. So I went to go speak to this group of scientists, and I asked them, um, I said, just generally, with a show of hands, how many people are, are generally familiar with this idea of the war on science in Canada? And only three people in a room of 30 raised their hands. And these were like professors, MA, and PhD students, and, and members of the public and, and sort of staff at the university. And I, I mean, that I've never, I would have bet against that. I thought, I would have thought that maybe one person wouldn't raise their hand. I would have thought that as well, yeah. I was really, really surprised about it. Um, and so that surprised me. And, and I mean, that talk I gave was great. I had a lineup of people at the door afterwards wanting to ask me questions. And they asked me, to, can you come back and speak again? And that was really great. I was really excited about that. So the, the, the interest level is high and people want to know about it. And in fact, tomorrow night I'm doing another talk on it and just to general members of the public. And um, 
it's something that people want to know more about and they want to know how to protect themselves from it. And people don't want to feel like they're being taken advantage of. And, um, and people feel really frustrated when, when they are. And, and um, on the blog, we, we have a lot of, um, I feel like we have a lot of support. Uh, the blog, we launched Small Canada in February of 2013 and um the response to the blog so far has been way more than we thought you know it's hard to launch a blog and to gain a readership and part part of our success was that we have um, our name is attached to dsmog blog which has been around for a long time and is is quite popular um and so we were we were surprised at the level of Canadian engagement about these issues. People are really frustrated right now with the Harper government. Mm-hmm. There's actually a poll that just came out that we wrote about, um, done by Environics, um, and they they showed that there's an increase in belief in climate change right now, man-made climate change in Canada. More and more people, it's like part of an upward tw- trend. More people are believing in it and are concerned about it. But the the belief of, um, that the Harper government or the Canadian government will do anything about it is plummeting. So you see this disparity between what people are seeing happen in the world and their belief that we as a country will and as a nation will in good faith act upon it. Hmm. And that is, uh, that, I mean, no poli- no political party, no politician wants to find themselves in that place, right? That's a, you're seeing a massive level of distrust and frustration and and that is something I, I think we see expressed um, on our Facebook page when we when we have articles and in the comments section, um, people are just there. There's no surprise there, and a lot of people are expressing their frustration. It's confirmation of what they already know about this government and about Canada's failure to to be more responsible, to be more just, to be more equitable, to take care of its citizens, to to be progressive, to be evolving as a nation and and to be, you know, a leader in the world in, in these issues. We're a wealthy developed nation, yet we're we're dead last when it comes to um, environmental um, environmental action. And that's that's gonna cause a lot of uh, disgruntled Canadians and that's exactly what we're seeing. We're all out of time, unfortunately. I think we could talk for her a lot longer. Hopefully, we'll have you on again sometime. Thanks. I want to thank you for being here. Thank you so uh, much. Good luck with your studies. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Again, thank you for listening to Beyond the Jargon on CFUV.